You're listening to the College Connection from New England Public Radio. Dr. Damon A. Williams of the Boys and Girls Club of America recently spoke about diversity and how to create a more inclusive community. His lecture, Towards a Model of Inclusive Excellence and Change, was recorded on Tuesday, March 1st, 2016, in the Cape Cod Lounge at UMass Amherst. It's so good to be here in New England uh, and to be at UMass. Uh, it's, it's a part of my old territory that I used to call home uh, as I was right down the road at the University of Connecticut uh, for six years. Um, I haven't had the good fortune to be on campus for some time, uh, but I feel like it's, like it's a homecoming because there's so many friends that I see in the room that I've had a chance to work with, collaborate with, uh, and study with, and do work with for, for a number of years now. Um, it's, it's interesting uh, how life takes us uh, through this journey, and you have these various different stops. I was down in Florida last week, uh, or two weeks ago, uh, giving remarks at a conference. Uh, it was a large meeting, and there was a group that came up to me from the University of South Florida, and they came up to me and they said, uh, Dr. Williams, Dr. Williams, we really want you to come back and speak at our annual Inclusive Excellence Summit. They said it's our 15-year anniversary, and we'd love to have you come back uh, as the anniversary speaker. And you were the inaugural speaker 15 years ago. I said, good Lord, I'm old now. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it made me think uh, back to those days when I was just beginning in this work, and I had the good fortune to uh, lecture at that event um, and had made some of my first contributions uh, around this conversation of inclusive excellence and change. And, you know, the beginning of that work is actually founded in some of the the, the greatness of UMass and some of the persons here at UMass. And I want to take a second just to tell a little bit of a story. Um, I was a new scholar, uh, recently minted, who had left the University of Michigan and was appointed as probably, if not, the youngest uh, assistant vice provost in the country at a major research university by Ronald Taylor at the University of Connecticut. And so I moved up to UConn and I was working there and you know, about six months into my tenure there, I had a chance to go to the American Association of College Universities Diversity and Learning Conference. So I went to the conference and I was at the conference and I saw this woman, uh, African-American woman about yay tall, very thin, just a ball of energy. Her name is Dr. Alma Clayton Pedersen. And I saw Alma, and I went and ran over to her, and I said, Alma, Alma, Alma. I said, Dr. Pedersen, Dr. Pedersen. I actually didn't say Alma at the time. I said, Dr. Pedersen, Dr. Pedersen. I said, I love, I mean, I absolutely love that campus climate monograph that you wrote, which laid out this beautiful framework of how to think about the campus climate. And she had wrote that framework with a number of colleagues at the time. And, you know, I told her about it. She said, oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for acknowledging that. Um, and, and, and that was the short of it, right? Flash forward two years later, I'm at the same conference, had not seen nor talked to her in that time, and I rushed up on her again and um, began a conversation with her. And she said, you know, I'm hosting this meeting on the future of diversity and inclusion in a post-University of Michigan Supreme Court environment. Would you be willing to come to this meeting? So I go into the meeting, and in the meeting is the full professor of the so-and-so at this school, and the vice provost for the this, that, and another at that school, and you know the national VP of the so-and-so, and they're all these bigwigs, and me. And I'm at the, in that room, and I'm going around, we're talking, and I'm starting making my contribution, doing my thing, and I leave the meeting, and um, you never know how opportunity will find you. Uh, one of the things I talked about earlier this morning was my leadership manifesto and being ready for the moment always. And when the moments arrive, you crush those moments and make them your own. And I'll never forget, I got this phone call. Hello, this is Damon. 
Damon, this is Alma Clayton Pedersen, uh, National VP for Institutional Renewal, American Association of College Universities. How are you doing? Alma, it's great to hear from you. I'm doing wonderful. I'm doing this project um, that follows up on that meeting. I've gotten a little bit of funding from the Ford Foundation on the future of diversity and inclusion in higher education. And I'm putting together these teams. And one team's going to focus on intergroup dialogue. Another team's going to focus on access and equity. A third team's going to focus on organizational change and diversity issues. And she said, I'm pairing a junior scholar with a senior scholar. And I'd love for you to be the junior person on the org change team. Now, mind you, I started floating up out of my chair. Because at the time, I don't think I had published anything other than my dissertation. And so she brings together this team. And the senior scholar I was paired with was uh, your very own uh, full professor of higher education and senior associate dean, Joseph Berger, who was in the third row here. And uh, Joe was on that team. And if you know anything about Joe's work, he's made uh, really, really powerful contributions to the discussion of leadership, change, governance, higher education, mo models and archetypes of structure, uh, so many different things. And uh, I had a chance to partner with him in writing what became the early thinking that I will talk about today around inclusive excellence and organizational change. There were three teams. There was only one team where the junior person was given the opportunity to be the first author. And that was our paper. And I wanted to publicly thank him for that. And so when I talk about how do we create opportunities and how do we lead to change, one of the things that I believe is it, it's grounded in this notion of more, right? More understanding, more giving up of your privilege, more trying to allow for others to find a space to be and to be on their pathway. And when he made the statement, your thinking has guided so much of this project, I want for you to be the first author. It was such a powerful example of someone who had so much credibility and so much cultural capital, giving it up for someone else to have some of that cultural capital. And that is what led to the beginning of that work, which ultimately you see now manifest on the back of the room in the books that are expressed here today. And so I wanted to begin with that story. For me, so much of life centers around understanding and grappling with these burning questions. And for nearly 20 plus years, I've been grappling with these questions. Any students in the room, by show of hands? Any students in the room? Handful of students in the room. I see some look like undergrads, some maybe look like grad students. I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to make any statements there. Don't know who's what, where, or when. But I was that student that was deeply involved in these issues of diversity and campus climate and inclusion and was struggling with them. From my earliest moments, really taking the task, my institution, asking the question why we were using the name red skin uh, in the 21st century to, to, to continue to use a stereotypical uh, role model and mascot uh, uh, for that institution, Miami University, all the way up to saying, why is our cultural center in the basement of this building, right? And I was railing against the system. And I was that student, and I stayed that student for years, um, not on the same issues, continuing to involve, but continuing to be driven by these burning questions. And these questions is, you know, what is diversity? And what does it really mean in this new economy that we find ourselves? It was, how do we engage in a broad conversation of diversity, which in the 21st century moment we find ourselves, which includes race and ethnicity, gender and sexual orientation, includes internationality, economic background, diversity of perspective, geographic diversity, and everything in between. How do we engage in that broad discussion, but yet not lose sight of the unique needs of different groups, which are nested in a socio-historical context, right? So that the needs of gender equity are not the needs of racial and ethnic equity, are not the needs of inclusion for an LGBTQ community. How do we engage that broad conversation, but yet not lose sight of those unique group needs? What does it mean to not just do stuff, 
but to do stuff strategically with purpose and intent to really move the needle forward. Uh, it was a burning question for me. And then how do we reimagine our work in a day-to-day -day way outside of a plan, outside of scorecards, outside of diversity best practices? How do we reimagine it daily in terms of how we walk it, how we live it? I'll never forget I was in California and I was asked a question by an individual who came up and said, I don't ascribe to gender and the dichotomy of gender. And um, he was beautifully ethnically and racially ambiguous as they tend to be in California. I had no idea who this person was. He just was beautiful. He was obviously male, but he was telling me that he didn't ascribe to male as gender. And the question that he asked me is, you're talking, you're saying all these great things about inclusion and excellence and I'm buying it. He said, but I want to ask you a personal question. He said, how many times have you mentored someone who did not look like you? How many times have you given up some of your privilege to extend yourself to someone who was perhaps different than you? And, and in that, it was asking the question, how was I walking it? How was I embracing it myself individually? And this fifth question, and this is really the, the, the most burning question, it's not a spark, it's not a flame, it's a, it's a roaring, raging forest fire in my life. Um, and that's why is there so much talk of change, but seemingly so little results oftentimes. I uh, had a chance to give a quick review of your diversity plan and have been in conversation around it. And that plan, like so many others, has some really good stuff in it. It's got some opportunity areas in it. It can be strengthened in some ways, but in many ways it has lots of stuff that you would want to have it. To be candid, I've never really read one that I thought was awful. I've only read them ones that I thought could get better, but they, weren't, they were never awful. And they were never awful because they were committed leaders who were deeply grappling with and engaging in the issues, trying to put something into the world. The challenge comes not in the plan, generally. It comes in the activation systems that are built to move the, the plan from concept to activation, to output, to outcome. You know, I tell folks all the time, you know, if you were going after a grant, you'd have a logic model. And in that logic model, you would talk about your uh, 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 assumptions of change. You would then talk about your inputs that were going into it. You would then talk about your activities. You would then talk about your outputs, and then you then would talk about your input, impact. And we would lay that thing out. But when we look at our plans, oftentimes they don't have that same type of tapestry of how activity is going to lead to action. And that's not just a critique of diversity plans. That's candidly a critique of strategic plans in the academy. They just don't look like that. Um, and so how do we move forward in ways that allow us to really not just talk about change, but to deeply embrace it? And that was what I wrote about in the books. And in writing those books, you know, I didn't sit back to publish these two books at the same time. I actually sat back to write one book. And that book was the chief diversity officer. I had done these major surveys across the country, had done hours and hours of interviews that began just down the road at Stores, Connecticut, on the phone. I, can, like, I, I conducted about 100 hours of interviews on the phone. I tell students all the time, I tell emerging scholars all the time, don't allow resources to hinder you from asking great questions and getting the data and pulling together the stories and the with the frameworks that you know can make contributions in the world. So I started out to write this book, and I'm writing, I'm furiously writing, I'm writing, I'm writing, I'm writing, I'm writing. And I ultimately turned it into my publisher. And my publisher looked at it, and he says to me, Damon, what you have produced, I think, is far exceeding of what we could have ever imagined on telling the story of chief diversity officers. He said, but man, it's too much. He said, uh, this is going to be a $95 book, and no one will ever buy it, uh, unless you're a business school faculty member, and they buy it anyway. He said, he says, so, so we got some options here. And if I back up in the story, what happened was 
as I was writing the Chief Diversity Officer book, I realized that there were some things that I needed to write foundationally, and if I didn't put those in the world, then everybody would have thought it was all about Chief Diversity Officers. That was the messianic, one bullet solution that would change the day on a campus, and that was not the story I wanted to tell. What I wanted to tell was a broader story of how strategically an institution needed to move forward, and the CDO was a part of that strategy. And so I had then gone back coming out of that meeting, and I had three options. One option was bust it down the middle, call it volume one, volume two. A second option was to go and just you know, let out a lot of blood and cut some chapters in the book. And the third option was to go back and reframe it. And in reframing it, really to tell the story through two books that will be branded as a set but could you lead uniquely. And hence was born into the world strategic diversity leadership uh, and the chief diversity officer as companion books that could operate together because I did not want to put the horse, uh, the, the cart before the horse, really wanting to tell the story as it needed to be told from the thousands of surveys we had done and the interviews uh, and, and the review of literature and framing. I believe that the moment that we find ourselves is likened to this perfect storm dynamic in that there's so much energy which is reframing and shifting the narrative of why diversity and inclusion matter so much in the 21st century. If we go back a decade, two decades, three decades ago, and we just came out of Black History Month, we would have been framing this conversation purely in a conversation of social justice and equity. Not that issues of social justice and equity don't remain incredibly important for the moment we find ourselves in today. But there's also another narrative that's a part of this dialogue, another narrative that elevates diversity's importance, and it's these perfect storm factors. It's the changing demographics, and I don't have to tell you what that means. It's the persistent reality that we see those who are economically vulnerable, those who are racial and ethnically diverse, their achievement levels are lower, but yet we know that the economic moment that we find ourselves demands that all folks need some form of post-secondary education to compete in the global economy. The Boys and Girls Clubs of America, I have the privilege to develop youth development strategy, educational achievement strategy that touches four million children across the country, indeed across the world. 68% of them are on free or reduced lunch. 70% of them are historically underrepresented minorities. They represent your pipeline. As we're talking about this work federally right now, and I am constantly interacting with leaders in the Fortune 500 community, constantly interacting at the highest levels of government, I'm talking about the AG, the secretary, president of this company and that company, the way we're framing this, we're framing this issue of diversity, is it's a matter of economic national security. That is the narrative that we're using. That is the narrative of how we're building this argument. When we're talking about the full participation of girls in STEM, the full participation of women at all levels of leadership, tapping into underrepresented communities, the game has changed. The conversation has changed. We're no longer framing it the way we were before. We're framing it in different ways. And I think as we talk about this journey, in what ways do we have a common talk points around how this journey has changed and how are we framing it in that way? Um, because we know uh, that the, the conversation today is not the same as it was before, but yet it's highly connected to it. And so this idea of diversity and defining it in the 21st century. Um, so often I'll be in conversations with institutions and institutions that are at lesser levels of maturity than this one, and you actually are quite mature as an institution in terms of your history with these issues. They're talking about diversity and they're trying to define it. Damn it, if I look at one more conversation around defining diversity, I'm going to pull my hair out. You know, diversity is diversity, right? It's race, ethnicity, sexuality, nationality, internationality, globalization, economic background, power and privilege, da 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 It's all that stuff. And in defining it, 
It's important, but it doesn't get you anywhere towards activating anything. And yet so many institutions are oftentimes stuck and unable to get to definition point to move them forward beyond the action. And so the thing I say is diversity is all these things, but we have to understand the unique socio-historical context of different groups. I think it absolutely critical that we track, monitor, understand rates of promotion for underrepresented minorities and women. Absolutely. I absolutely do not think we should track, monitor, and promote the number of LGBTQ students, faculty, or staff we have on campus in the same way. Different context, different issue, needing different tactical activity, right? We're not going to put a scorecard up and say we've got this many gay folk on campus. You know, not what we're going to do. But in the same instance, we may put a scorecard up around different groups. And so how do we grapple and nest with those different realities of different groups as we're moving forward with our strategies? I would hear these conversations around diversity, and I'd start to hear these different ideologies around what diversity was. So if I were to poll this room and ask folks to define diversity, I'd get all those different identities, but i also start hearing these ideologies. Some folks would say, no, this is classically about equity of outcomes equity of outcomes for historically underrepresented groups. Others would say, no, it's not really about that racial issue. The true issue is about economics. It's about economic vulnerability. Others would say, no, 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 it's about race, to be clear. And it's not just about race. I don't want to hear about these new racial demographic groups. I want to talk about black folks and white folks and that dichotomy. Others would have more of a centric perspective, centrist perspective. It's about this group and this group and this group and this group, and they're all the same. And you'd hear these things, and you hear some folks flip it and say, no, 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 no. This is a conversation about how I support diversity. What I don't support is reverse discrimination in quota setting. So you started hearing all these different ideologies. And so I started mapping these things. And you know, the, what I found is that these are the obstacles oftentimes to success because all these various different groups are doing this, trying to get a sense of it. But when we elevate and step back and say, this is about meeting the needs of the world we're in today. How are we preparing students for a diverse and global world? How are we going to take advantage of all the talent that we have? Study after study after study have reified a central truth. The more diverse our communities, the more diverse our classrooms, the more diverse our leadership teams, the greater our outcomes. Now you have not just the classic faculty members engaged in that research, but you've got McKinsey and Associates writing that report now. You've got the, 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 uh, some of the leading businesses writing those reports right now because they're seeing the outcomes as well. And so this conversation has changed, but yet it remains in a pathway of evolution. And one of the pieces that I think is so important is how do you quickly get to a framework of building goals around this work, right? Not definitions, not ideologies, goals. And I like to even say now smart goals, right? specific, measurable, actionable goals, right? Where are those goals, right? We're going to get this done by this doing that. How are we building out real, meaningful, specific ways that we're going to drive tactical activity? When I talk about diversity and I move beyond the conversation of all these identities and all these ideologies, I start talking about this framework that I have expressed behind me. At the top of the framework, I'm talking about getting folks in, seeing them promote through the system or graduate through the system and moving on to what comes next. That's a huge part of how we build that framework. Another part of it is I'm talking about the way that we're engaging in diversity-themed scholarship, whether it's international or domestic. That's not a part of how we talk about it. One of the things I found to be exciting about coming here is 
you have some really powerful early history in this regard. One of the first African-American studies departments in the country. Intellectual lineage with some of the forefathers of, uh, of racial sociology in this nation, intellectual thought in this nation. In what ways is that continuing to be a point of pride and promotion and aspiration building that takes UMass from being this level to this level, at a higher level and a higher gear? In what ways are we cultivating that type of uh, scholarship? Um, it's this notion of the campus climate of inclusion or exclusion. And we see across the, the country a wave of not new events that have happened, like these that are depicted behind me. Uh, and that's a picture of some pictures from UMass, or excuse me, University of Wisconsin-Madison while I was there. I took them when I was walking the streets uh, of a student you know, with his ghetto blaster and his Native American tire going to uh, a, a party that was themed in that way. Uh, and this one here, which was particularly troubling, which looks like a picture of strange fruit uh, of a black body hanging by a rope. Um, and actually what it is is a lifelike Spider-Man doll. Uh, the Spider-Man, when, when he switched his outfit to the cool black and white one. Uh, a lifelike Spider-Man doll. And when we peered in and asked the students about this particular image, uh, because you know what happened. There was a student walking down the street and he saw it. So what did he do? And then what did he do? And then now we had a global conversation going on about diversity and inclusion in Madison, Wisconsin, that was popping off all across the world. Uh, you know, one of the, the questions I get asked all the time is, as a diversity leader, what, is, what are the skills you need to need? You need to know something about diversity. You need to know more about organizational change. In the 21st century moment, you need to know a lot about communications and social media. Uh, and how do you really bring those things together? Uh, but that conversation was happening. And so we talked to this young man. And in talking to this young man, you know, he said to us, well, I, you know, I want to be a teacher. You know, I want to help communities and kids. I wasn't mocking anything around race. He said what we were doing was mocking suicide. What? Spider-Man had a bad day today. Uh, and so he just decided to jump off the side of the rail. Uh, which sends all types of different types of messages because we know some of our students, some of our young persons take their lives every day. Never did he think that a black body hanging from a belt off the side of a building was signifying something very different. And this young man was a junior. And then it starts asking the question in what ways are people interrogating their power and privilege and what ways are they looking at the world from different perspectives. And then it starts begging the question, how are we creating intentional learning moments to accomplish that? You know, in what ways is that addressed in our diversity plan? Were we very clear and actionable in what the strategy should be? We know that we have some systems in place. If we turn them, we can systematically accomplish folks to understand differential equations or calculus or whatever the topic may be. There's some other types of learning systems. If we built them and turned them, we could systematically get other types of outcomes as well. Do we do that? And it takes me to this other dimension of the pyramid, this notion of preparing students for a diverse and global world. I was at the University of Chicago's uh, Booth School of Management at a, uh, a swanky awards banquet. Uh, there was ice sculptures and bands were playing, and I don't know how much money they raised off this event, but it must have been substantive uh, at the, the, the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. And one of my dear friends was winning an award. He was winning the Young Alumni Award uh, for leadership uh, for his work at Viacom uh, 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 International. And um, so we were sitting at a table. And so we're sitting at a table. We're sitting at a table. It's a circular table, and the tables were kind of mixed up. And, you know, you're at the table. You're having cocktails going around. And, 
Everybody's chit-chatting. So what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? And so I got asked, what did I do? And at the time I worked at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the question came to me, what did I do? And, you know, when you do diversity work, you get asked, what do you do? You go, <laughs> So he said, what do you do? And I, you know, I, I said, I work at the University of Wisconsin. You know, I do such and such, my title such and such. And then he asked my favorite question in the world. He said, can you say more? I said, oh, wow, sure, I can say more. I can tell you what. So I start telling him, you know. My job is about a diversifying institution and trying to create systems that prepare students to be leaders in a diverse global world, start walking it through, talking about my initiatives. And he says to me, wow, I am so glad that someone's doing that job. I didn't know that job existed. He was a managing partner at one of the big five consulting firms in the US. And he led mergers and acquisitions. And he then started to double click into the why. And he goes on forever and he said, you know, a couple of things. He said, number one, we have incredible challenge trying to recruit underrepresented minorities for our team, number one. He said, number two, he said, we're starting to have incredible difficulty recruiting domestic students for our teams. And he said, it oftentimes has less to do with the quantitative analytical horsepower. He said it has more to do with the socio-emotional, relational leadership skills and abilities. He said, Students that come in internationally, they have a greater ability to work in teams and indifference. I mean, this is him. I was like, man, can I get you on tape? I said, I am going to tell this story all over the nation. So he starts going into this. Then he said something that was even more uh, compelling in some ways. He said, quote, he said, there's all the, another difference between the domestic and the international students that I've noticed as well. He said, a lot of the US domestic students, they don't know how to suffer. They want an immediate gratification. He said the international students have a much deeper commitment to being gritty and resilient. They don't want to get promoted. They don't expect to get promoted today. And I didn't quite know all of what that meant, but there was something very interesting and compelling to me as I thought about it. Because I know that there is a whole generation of students at this campus who are not the sons and daughters of privilege, who did not come and they are not second generation or third generation college goers. They are showing that grit and that resilience. But in what ways are we preparing and showcasing and getting them ready for these moments uh, to move forward into these opportunities that can be so life-changing? You know, when I think about leadership in the 21st century and this work of diversity, you know, I think about these five key skills and abilities. And if you look at all the people who are writing about these skills and what corporations want and what the, the healthcare sector wants and what the not-for-profit sector wants, they're looking for folks who can ideate and problem-solve. And we know that the context of diversity in and out of classroom helps to drive greater levels of cognitive complexity and ideation and problem solving. In the moment we find ourselves, people have to be very strong and very savvy in terms of digital literacy. Not just consumers of content, but the ways in which you are producing, creating, sharing, and leading in the digital world and ascertaining the goodness of content. Uh, so oftentimes we see folks who, uh, uh, students who show up on our campus and they, they hold the TMZ and the National Institute of Health website uh, at the same level and same standard of goodness, right? Uh, in what ways are we grappling with and interrogating that? Um, and communication abilities, you know? What is the implication of this all the time in terms of being distant from those who are around you. I just did a survey recently of uh, 1,300 teenagers uh, at one of my conferences, and one of the things that we found was even though they were highly likely to use uh, social media and other digital technology to communicate and engage, they still talked about the importance and their preferred way of interacting with friends was still face-to-face. -face. 
I was surprised at that uh, somewhat, uh, given what we were seeing. Um, but these communication abilities, the ability to lead and follow in teams, and then also this idea of cultural competence, right? An ability to see the world from multiple perspectives, to interact across difference, to collaborate, to engage, using identity not as an obstacle but as a possibility builder. And how are we systematically accomplishing all five of these things in the work that we do in and outside the classroom? The model I'm getting ready to show you now is something I've been noodling around with for a while. We actually sold it to Disney. Disney, Toyota, and the University of Phoenix as a part of a, a new leadership program that we're building for our clubs across the country for a very large sum of resource that I won't put the number out there, uh, but to build a new generation of leadership program associated with our Youth of the Year program. And it begins with this classic idea that we have to help our students find and understand their passions. We have them to establish purpose and goals. We have to help them to build out a real dogged commitment to maximizing potential. And that we have to give them an ability to understand the pathways to get there. And those pathways are around experiences. Um, I was just communicating with the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education. I know there's others in the room. It's not just what happens in the classroom, but the experiences, those high impact learning experiences. It's helping folks understand about the importance of credentialing. Um, and it's not just the credentials that you acquire at one point in time, but credentials formal and informal across a lifetime. At some point in our lives, what we come to understand is that the credentials don't matter as much, the experiences don't matter as much, but what truly matters is the relationships we have and the degree to which we have senior mentors, peer mentors, personal coaches, boards of advisors, mentees. How do we cultivate the types of relationships that unlock possibility? One of my mentors told me years ago, Damon, the doors you want to go through as a leader, at some point you're going to have to have folks that sign off on you. And in many ways, those individuals that sign off on you are going to have to look different from you from a race, ethnicity perspective. Because that is the world you live in today. How do you build those types of relationships to get that type of opportunity? And then the other piece of this is having role models and avoidance models. You know, the degree to which we're looking and saying, oh, that's the pathway I want to be on, or oh, ho, 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 that's the pathway I want to avoid. The degree to which we're asking the question, saying, hmm, that individual is a compelling speaker. What about them makes compelling and trying to reverse engineer and understand it? Whether I know President Obama, whether I know uh, uh, President Clinton, whether I know uh, Donald Trump or not, what makes Donald Trump so compelling? You know. You may not like his politics, you may love his politics, but damn, he's much watched TV. You know, what is it, right? What about the sociological moment that makes that identity so catch on? I want to reverse engineer and understand that, right? What makes President Clinton so powerful in taking very complex things and boiling it down to the root issue? It's the economy, stupid, and being very precise with it. I want to know those things, good, bad, or indifferent. And then what makes the whole thing fly is the degree to which you focus, you're resilient, you put time on your side, and you're disciplined in what you're doing. And it's the turning of that which leads to the breakthrough results and you know, this notion of innovating around this work of diversity. Uh, one of my favorite books is written by Christensen and Hayden and Christensen and the folks up at Harvard. They talk about this idea of innovating uh, 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 and the innovator's DNA. And in talking about innovators' DNA, they did this study of innovators, right? Innovators on the corporate side, innovators in the not-for-profit side, the K through 12, the higher ed, the government, various different industries. How are they innovating? And when I talk about diversity work, it's a question of how are we going to innovate? Diversity work is change work. It's never about maintaining the status quo, or we wouldn't be doing it. 
So at the core, it's about change. And so I wanted to understand this innovator's DNA and see how it applied to this work. And they talk about this notion that innovators are always questioning. Why have we wrote 20 diversity or five diversity plans over the last 20 years, and yet the outcomes that we're seeing still look remarkably the same? In some dimensions, not all. I don't want to be overtly critical because I'm sure this institution has evolved and grown and has successes to claim too, but they're questioning. The other thing is they're looking for solutions wherever they can find them, whether that's at an institution that's in their peer comparison set or it's an institution that is totally out of that peer comparison set. It's in another context. Where are the solutions wherever they can find them? Innovators have a bias towards action. You know, one of the things that happens in the academy is too much we talk about it all the time rather than doing it. Innovators have a bias towards experimentation. And there are times in our moment's history where the possibilities of our DNA are not very broad, meaning we don't have the resources. We don't have the senior institutional commitment. We don't have the plan that's going to. And so when that moment you find yourself, how do you still keep experimenting? How do you still keep innovating? How do each of us, the 40 or 50 or so of us in the room today, put one thing on paper right now that we say we're going to do tomorrow to get this thing popping in the right direction? Experimenting. And then the other thing about them is once they experiment and we're proving concepts, how do we take those concepts to scale, right? And how do we really, really scale up, drive up, move, in, and move it forward aggressively? and always staying in a conversation with other innovators. Because when we come together, it drives our innovation engine. But as I looked at their model and started applying it to diversity, you know, questioning, solution building, engaging others, experimenting, taking ideas to scale, check, 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 and check. But I found that there was something else when I used this model reflected on my experience of diversity and inclusion. And what I found was this, if it wasn't embedded with this notion of courage around diversity, nothing seemed to happen. The diversity conversation is one where it's about some risk. You know, some faculty may not like it. Some alumni may not like it. Some students may want to, you know, launch a rocket ship to the greatness of your leadership. Some communities may not think it's aggressive enough. Others are going to think it's too aggressive. So whenever you're engaging around this issue of diversity, there's some level of courage that is required. Whether you're at the faculty level and you're taking some courageous moves in evolving your curriculum, you're at the student level and you're taking some courageous moves to maybe open up your membership or recruit in some new ways, or you're at the dean level and you're talking about saying, hey, we're going to start this new center and we're going to prioritize it in the following ways. How are you engaging and grappling and finding the courage? In my leadership manifesto that I talked about this morning, I talk about authentic leadership creates aspiration and followers by the courageousness of the action, the words, and the sacrifice. The action, the words, and the sacrifice. Innovating diversity. And the first principle that I believe is so important to accomplishing this is there's no magic bullets. And so as we move towards the Q&A of our conversation today, I'm, I'll be open for business for any questions. But the first answer I say is I have no magic bullets. Uh, I've visited north of 300 institutions across the country. I've studied many more, but I have no magic bullets. There's only tactics, people who are grappling, trying to make a difference, trying to get up every day and trying to move the agenda. Donna Shalala, um, one of the real iconic women in higher education leadership, a former uh, federal appointee, former chancellor at Wisconsin, uh, has served, served as uh, president of uh, University of Miami for years and is noted for her work uh, in many ways. I had the good fortune some years ago to hear her lecture about this idea of change 
And so one of the things she talked about is when she arrived down in uh, South Florida at the University of Miami. And she said she got down there and she was like, this campus is too commuter oriented. She said, where's the life on the campus of the students interacting? And she said, you know, the weekends come and they just leave. Uh, she said, you know, I, I want to enhance the intellectual culture of the environment in different ways. And one of the examples she said is, I realized I had to put the lawn chairs up. We were sitting in the room like, what are you talking about? What she was analyzing was that there was no places and spaces for community on campus. And so she went out and bought a ton of lawn furniture, literally, got a ton of vendors on campus, literally, because what she knew was that that was a low-hanging fruit tactical play that she could make because she knew if she started with saying first-year students can't have a car, she was going to get something called resistance and pushback. And that was not the first place to make her move. And so what she said is that when you're leading change efforts that you know are going to have to be multi-year in nature, multi-cyclical in nature, deeply intrusive ultimately, how do you begin the journey by saying, what are the lawn chairs? What are we going to put out today? And what can we do that's immediately low-hanging fruit opportunity? And so one of the, the challenges I oftentimes raise for leaders is, what are some of those things you can do today uh, that are low in cost, but potentially impactful and meaningful? And how do you begin there and continue to go forward? Not that we shouldn't make seven, eight figure investments in our work, and I'll talk about that a little bit too. It's this notion that the work that we're doing is, is about culture change. Uh, and I haven't used this slide in a while, but I brought this slide back for Joe Berger because he's the first person that showed it to me. Uh, and this is a slide uh, that emerges out of the organizational learning MIT tradition talking about culture of our campus, right? And at the outermost rim of the culture of our campus, you know, the, the place we can really move it pretty easily, it's what we refer to as this geospatial dimension, right? It's the pictures that we have on the wall. It's the reason that newer buildings oftentimes have less concrete and more open spaces and windows because it creates a different type of culture, a different type of interaction possibility. It's taking our LGBTQ center and putting it right in the heart of the student center rather than having it off somewhere on the far end of campus, right? Because it creates different patterns. So how do we move the geospatial? Sending messages of inclusion and exclusion. How do we build traditions and symbols and rituals? What is the tradition? or the ritual where diversity issues and inclusion issues are elevated to the highest levels of this institution. Where does that happen? Does that happen as a part of convocation? Does it happen as a part of commencement? Does it happen symbolically in the presidential or the chancellor's newsletter or memo? In what ways does that happen? How do you build ritual and tradition? I'll never forget, I was at the University of Connecticut. We were trying to do some of these things. And we were trying to get our diversity awards celebration off the ground. And you know, we were sitting there talking, and there was a member of our a member of our alumni uh, uh, group that was there, and she said, "How can we connect this to the athletic franchise?" She said, "Because nothing's more important than athletics at UConn." <laughs> Don't know if I quite agreed with that statement, but but she was onto something. Well, what she was saying was, "How do you take diversity and connect it to something that has a universal reality as important?" Right? And so we looked and we said, let's find the first coach. We ended up finding the first coach who fielded an all-African-American starting five and was noted for graduating those students. Uh, and that was who we gave our first award for in that regard. So how do you create traditions and symbols? But at the core, at the core of the model, uh, it talks about this idea of how do you enhance the mental models and assumptions that people have, right? How do you grapple with that? How do you create learning moments where faculty aren't thinking that diversifying our institutions is eroding our excellence, uh, that they're not thinking, well, if we recruit this individual from, from Howard to join our faculty, I, 
You know, I don't quite know if that's going to drive excellence and the quality that we're looking. How do you grapple with that? Well, it doesn't happen os uh, osmotically. It happens by creating intentional learning moments where faculty are coming together, engaging with faculty, staff are coming together, engaging with staff, and students are coming together, engaging with students. Otherwise, it does not happen. It is very simple. So therefore, we can't move the mental models and assumptions absent having the dialogues and the conversations. Should that be something that we mandate? I don't know, that's not for me to decide, that's for you to decide. Because it's all about your level of tolerance for engagement and intrusiveness. Your level of tolerance for engagement and intrusiveness. You could create an activity statement that's a part of every faculty annual report that says you have to illustrate to us or we're giving you the opportunity to illustrate to us what you did to contribute to a diverse and inclusive community, right? And you can just collect it. And just collecting something, you start to change what people are thinking about. You start to illustrate and send messages about what's important. You could also build it into your tenure process. And now you've taken it from here to way up here, right? You could be asking as a part of the tenure portfolio the degree to which you've contributed or not contributed to our inclusive excellence agenda. You could ask the question. And then you could meet out what it means, the answers in that process. Do I think that it should be as important as your scholarly contribution? Absolutely not. Do I think it might be a part of how you're engaging and educating students? Yeah, probably so. Your decisions, again, tactics that can be built that start to really move culture forward. The other piece of this is Deborah Meyerson, a Stanford University business professor, talks about this notion of tempered radicals, right? Tempered because you're working within the context of the system, right? but radical because you understand that that system has to change. You know, how are we as full professors, tenured professors, how are we as department chairs, deans, how are we stepping up and stepping out, being radical because we're trying, we know something needs to change, but being tempered because we know it has to happen in the system. Some folks say to me, I'm not tempered, I'm just radical. And uh, my response to that is you're probably also ineffective. Uh, and the thing that I say all the time is this is about winning. I don't care about anything but winning. I want to tell a little story about this. I was, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was at, at a university, and I was making a statement about faculty diversity, right? And I was talking about underrepresented faculty coming into the institution. And I said, you know, once you come into the institution, you know, you've got to satisfy whatever the requirements are, irrespective of your background, to achieve tenure, if you're on the tenure track. And a woman asked me, and she was a deeply committed diversity champion, she said, well, sounds like you're saying that underrepresented faculty have to conform, or women have to conform. I said, you're damn right I am. And, and she said, well, I don't agree with that. I don't think they should have to conform. And I said, well, let me say more about that, because I'm, I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but let me say more. What I'm saying is this. The culture of our academic institutions and the culture of faculty and the culture of tenure and promotion is one of our most hollow, sacrosanct value systems. If you think that that department and that, um, and that scholarly discipline is going to change and shift for this little person who came from wherever to get tenured, then try again. You may get somebody to crack through. I said, the more powerful thing to do is for that person to come in and really understand it on the surface of what it is. In every discipline, you've got your questions, you've got your methods, and you've got your frameworks. Your research questions can be as diverse as you want them to be. Your methods, your frameworks better be as traditional as they need to be until a point in time in which you're tenured. At that point in time, you can then 
not just ask the questions you want to ask, but start using the methods you want to ask. I said, all I'm saying is have dynamic questions, use traditional methods and frameworks until you hit tenure and you hit full, and then you can do what the hell you want to do. And then you have a level of capital that allows you to start influencing the system in a different way because now you're the endowed chair of the so-and-so faculty of the so-and-so. And that becomes really, really important, not to say that we're not grappling to try to create inclusive uh, dynamics for all of our faculty. Of course we want to do that. But we also have to recognize what it takes to be successful in a context. And how do we just make ourselves naked to those realities and really focus in building them? This idea of finding the critical leverage points. When we start talking about moving a change agenda, there's five million things we can do. But how do we find the critical leverage points, right? It's the general education diversity distribution requirement. That if we built that requirement and that requirement had some learning goals and every single UMass student took it, we have systematically built capability to get to a certain outcome. That is a powerful leverage point. You know, it's finding those leverage points around what it is, and it might not be 10, it might be five, it might be three, and then doubling down on them and, and moving forward aggressively in them. We build too many things oftentimes in our plans. Right? How do you get down to the root cause, the minimal viable thing, the, the, the minimum thing you can do to get the biggest efforts and then aggressively move forward? I always say that diversity plans and other plans, they can't live without air, accountability, and infrastructure, incentives, and resources. Air. Accountability, infrastructure, incentive, and resources. Air. So important. Um, I was looking at your plan and I saw one little paragraph on accountability. That probably means there's not much in there on accountability, right? I saw very little in there about what the incentives were going to be. What were the resources that are going to be? And, and it's not a critique of your plan. This is what all the plans look like. And it's not a critique of even your diversity plan, because this is what strategic plans look like in the academy, oftentimes. But that's why we end up driving into these realities where we can't see where we're going. And then we beg the question, why aren't we getting the outcomes that we and there's no reason why you can't start stepping the game up a little bit when you move out of plan into activation and how do you do that. I heard a lot about chief diversity officers through the day today and should the model be decentralized or centralized. As I said when I was talking about the books, a chief diversity officer is a tactical play to help your campus to move forward. It's not the end all be all. I do think having someone who wakes up helping all of us to be engaged in that work is important. But I also believe that if that is the only person that's waking up believing this work is critically important, then it is doomed to failure. I also believe that that person should wake up and have some budget to incent some things and do some things and not just wake up and try to convince people with an argument. I believe that that person should be well placed in terms of rank and the way they have to live on the campus. I think that person should have some staff, if not some units, at a place of the, the size and complexity of UMass. I mean, you probably got 40 or 50 diversity committees on campus. You know, just keeping up with them requires a staff member, right? I mean, so, so you start to looking at it, and you say, yeah, this could be a part of it, you know? And at the same instance, too, if that's the only lever we turned, then that wouldn't be nearly enough to get anything done. It wouldn't be nearly enough. So the question is, how do we then build out a, a plan that has our plan up here? How does it cascade, right? How does the College of Education, how does the College of Socio and Behavioral Sciences, how does the College of Engineering then take that 
and interpret what it means locally where they are and then develop their tactical plan against it. Their measures and benchmarks against it over time. That's what it's all about. The diversity officer, the CDO, can play a role in that. Uh, they can be a critical part of that process, uh, but they aren't the end all, be all of it. You know, I talked about uh, some research we've been doing earlier today with these institutions that won this Insight into Diversity Higher Education Excellence in Diversity Award, the HEED Award. And uh, what was interesting about these institutions is I was able to kind of look at some of the capabilities that they had built and then compare it to a national group in my data set. You know, these HEED Institution Award winners, 85% of them had a diversity plan. 89% were reporting on these issues to the board. Nearly 70% had a scorecard. They were talking about this as a part of the annual review of administrators. Nearly half of them was a part of the annual review of faculty. I do these are, these are, these are very promising practices to be replicated. And when I compared it to my national group, you saw it was clearly they were much further ahead. I asked some questions, though, and I asked a ton of questions in that survey. But some of the outcomes we saw, we saw that they were, much, uh, they were achieving at a much higher level on student academic outcomes defined in this instance as graduation rates, but their faculty diversity stuff was nearly the same as the national comparison group. There was nearly no movement. Uh, and when I looked at the capabilities of what they were doing at that institution, they weren't using the most promising practices. Uh, and so even this institutional group that was, had won this award wasn't using the most promising practices, um, which is why I believe it's so important to have clear scorecarding. You know, what are the goals, what are the tactics, what are the indicators across the various dimensions of your plan? Don't leave it to chance. Build out the scorecard, track and measure it over time, even if it's difficult, even if the measures are imperfect. That is so key to actually move an agenda forward. And my last slide, and then we can open ourselves up for conversation. Uh, I'm a deep believer that we can't be committed unless there's an investment of currency. Uh, commitment without currency is counterfeit. Commitment without currency is counterfeit. We got to make cash investments. Doesn't mean that diversity has to get all the work, all the money, excuse me, every day. But if we look and say this is never a top three, never a top five priority ever, then we never really move it. So we've got to find ways that we can point to those moments where it was a top three priority and we did make the investments. And sometimes those investments are going to be new dollars. Sometimes those investments are going to be a reallocation of current dollars. Other times, those investments are going to come through the, the revenue pursuit of more dollars. Uh, I believe we leave so much opportunity on the table, not only in terms of federal pursuit uh, or foundation pursuit, but more importantly, in terms of alumni pursuit and, and, and creating uh, uh, diversity finance strategies that are part of our capital campaigns or micro campaigns that we're building out to get resources generated to drive our diversity efforts on campus. That concludes my formal remarks. Thank you so much.